you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 12. Again, if uh, you're not familiar with Zechariah, you can find Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament. Turn back two books, you'll be right there. You can use your table of contents, you can look at the screens. Plenty of options for you. We'll finish our second week in Zechariah before we complete our series through the Minor Prophets in Malachi next Sunday. But this was just too beautiful not to share. Zechariah chapter 12, we'll read verse 10 through chapter 13, verse 1 together. This is God speaking, and he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. And on that day, there shall be a fountain. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would awaken us to our sinfulness. I pray that today you would move us to an intense season of mourning and grief over our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would take the intensity of that repentance and spread it extensively across our land. Father, as you bring us to the cross, help us to look past the cross and see the fountain the fountain that has been opened through the resurrection of Christ, that our sins have been paid for and sinners can now be washed clean. Lord, show us Christ today. Let us adore him. Let us cherish him. Let us delight in him. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We live in a world of counterfeits, don't we? You're probably reminded of that every single time you have to jump through the 75 different hoops to log into your Gmail account. And the thing about counterfeits is that counterfeits are really pretty difficult to spot. Bernie Madoff was the former president of the NASDAQ. The SEC, which is institution whose literal job is to be able to identify counterfeits and frauds, investigated him on multiple accounts, found him to be above board and unofficially emboldened him in his plot in the Ponzi scheme. Of course, we know that Madoff ultimately died in jail. His returns all proved to be fake, and he had defrauded people out of $65 billion. Paul tells us, that the church itself is not immune to the counterfeits that are so prevalent in our world. Paul says that there are those who have the appearance of godliness, 
but deny, deny its power. That there are churches that can be filled to the brim, but have no touch of God. That there can be Christians that accomplish great good in this world and perhaps give all of the fruit and the evidence. They have the appearance of godliness, but they lack its power. They don't actually know God. That the church is likened by Jesus in one of his parables to wheat and tares. That the wheat and the tares are indistinguishable until the day of harvest. But there are those that are counterfeits, but look to be real. I think that the prophet Zechariah helps us here. Because we begin to ask the question, if counterfeits are so prevalent, and if counterfeits are even uh, present here in the life of the church, then how is it that we can distinguish between a true work of God and a counterfeit? How is it that we can distinguish a true message from God from a counterfeit? How is it that in my life I can discern the difference between an emotional upheaval and a movement of the Spirit of God in my life? I really think this gets to the message of Zechariah. I told you last week that the first eight Uh, The first six chapters of Zechariah are filled with these eight visions, these visions that give us shocking pictures and surprising explanations leading to securing promises. Then you get to verses, chapters seven and eight, and chapters seven and eight are kind of giving an explanation. They're they're like a commentary on all that's going on and all that God hopes to accomplish. And then he, he moves into chapters 10 through 14, and the book closes with two sermons from God, two prophetic sermons from God that describe the new world order that he's going to establish and inaugurate through his kingdom in a day that is to come in the future. So we come to chapter 12. We're beginning the second of those sermons. And the beginning of chapter 12, in the first nine verses, he begins to describe a nation that is secure, a nation that is invincible, a nation against whom no enemy will be able to stand, a nation that will only know prosperity and bounty, that no one will be able to come and to take it from them. And and my understanding, my interpretation of that is that he's talking about the age of the church. He's talking about the establishment of a new holy nation through Christ. That temple that we discussed last week that he's building from those living stones against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail. And then we get to verse 10 and he's explaining how he's going to bring this about. The means by which he is going to establish an invincible nation against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail. And I think it's there that we begin to see what a true work of God really looks like, especially in the new covenant era, especially in the era after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, especially in the era after the fulfillment of the law of Moses, especially in the era after the resurrection and after the once for all sacrifice has been made on our behalf, that we begin to see an idea. So what I want to do... I want us to start with a definition of what true revival is. And then from the text, I want us to unpack what that would look like so that we can understand it and so that we can recognize it. So I want you to see that true revival is a work in us to see an evil by us in discovery of a hope for us. Let me read that one more time. True revival is a work in us to see an evil by us in discovery of a hope for us. I want to start by looking at a work of God in us. A work of God in us. 
it might surprise you to hear that the Lord ultimately converted me through a song and not through a sermon. Now, there were three years of, of context of sermons that I had heard faithfully preached by my pastor and by my youth pastor that informed my faith and informed my decision and, and, and set the table for that. But I had, I had three years really of an awareness of my sin, of an awareness of the gospel, and ultimately of a refusal to submit myself to the gospel. But on a cold February day in 2001 in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, at a winter camp, before the sermon was preached that night, a woman from our church, she stood and she sang a cappella, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And it was like the scales fell from my eyes. That for the first time, I truly glimpsed the grace of God and its impact on my life. And the one thing that I knew above all things is that more than I wanted my next oxygen, more than I wanted a drink of water, more than I wanted a meal, more than I wanted the approval of all of my peers in the room, I wanted grace. I wanted grace. And so I tell you that so they have the context to understand that it was a glimpse of true grace that I believe converted me in the moment. The concern that I have is that today there seems to be as many definitions of grace as there are preachers and interpreters of it. That everyone can use the word grace and everyone can mean something completely different. And so there is in our day a preponderance of counterfeit grace being taught, being enjoyed, being trusted. But it's only in authentic grace, brothers and sisters, that we have actual hope. It's only in authentic grace that we have actual salvation. And I think the work of the prophet Zechariah helps us to begin to identify some marks of true grace. The first, I want you to see that grace effects change. Grace effects change. So you'll notice that he says there in verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants a spirit. Now, if you were to go and you were to do a search of all the ways that the word spirit is used in the Old Testament, you would see that it can mean wind, you would see that it can mean the spirit of a man, the soul of a man, and you would see that it means the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And it is the context that really helps the interpreter know what's in view and what's meant by the word spirit in that particular context. And so if you go and you do a survey of the Old Testament and the use of the word spirit, what you will find is almost without fail every time the phrase pour out and spirit come together that what you're talking about there is actually the Holy Spirit. And so I think that this should be capitalized in our Bibles. That this is talking about not a spirit, not even your spirit, but God's spirit. A pouring out of the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that helps us get to the understanding of what he means when he says he's going to pour out on him a spirit of grace. You see, the issue that the people of God have always had 
is their inability to keep the law. The law, you understand, is not the problem. You understand? We, we, we bang on the law all the time. And we think we have the apostle Paul standing behind us to do it. But the law was never the problem. The law was holy. The law was righteous. The law was perfect. The problem is, is I'm not holy. And I'm not perfect. And I'm not righteous. The problem was not that it was an unholy law. The problem was, is that you can tell sinners exactly what they need to do and how they need to act and how they need to think to be right with God, and they cannot do it. There's an inability. Not an unholy law, it's an unholy people. And so you always are seeing these repetitive themes throughout the Old Testament. We've seen this as we've traced the big story, haven't we? They do well, they fall into sin, God removes his hand, discipline comes, they do well, they repent, they fall into sin, God withholds his We see these patterns and we're always thinking, hey, yo, why can't you figure this out, right? We would be the same way, brothers and sisters. And so to understand what he means by spirit and by grace, I think you need to go back and understand what the background of of Zechariah's understanding of the work of the spirit really would be. So we can go back just a few decades to the prophet Ezekiel, and we can hear what he has said about the work of the spirit. That the prophet Ezekiel had said that the spirit of God was going to be poured out by God upon his people in a new day, in a new age, in a new covenant. That God was going to wash his people of their uncleanness. We read this to start the service, didn't we? He's going to wash his people of their uncleannesses. He's going to wash them of their sinfulness. And what is he going to do? He's going to take from them that heart of stone. He's going to take from them that sinful nature. He's going to take from them that desire to sin and to love sinning. He's going to take from them that inability to keep the word of God. And he's going to give them instead a heart of flesh, a heart that is sensitive to the work of God, a, a heart that is a, a new nature, able to, to bring glory and honor to the name of God. And then you'll look at the bottom of the screen there. I, I put up one of the verses, verse 27. He says, and I will put my spirit where? I will put my spirit where? This is relevant in the book of Zechariah. What did we see? He's going to build a new temple. He's going to build a new temple. Where does, who dwells in the temple? The spirit of God dwells in the temple. Who did we say the new temple is going to be? It's going to be us. It's going to be us. So this all is the backdrop is here in Ezekiel 36. I will put my new spirit within you. And what's the spirit's work going to do? And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So right now you are living with a sinful nature. Right now you are incapable of keeping my law. But I'm going to put a new nature. I'm going to put a new spirit. I'm going to put a new heart in your chest. And now you will be able where you once were unable. Now you will be empowered where you were once defeated. You see that? See, brothers and sisters, this is the work of grace. This is what it means for the spirit of grace to be poured out upon you. That grace does not make God okay with your sin. That grace is an inward transformation that makes you love holiness. That grace is not God's passive approval of your lifestyle. Grace is God's active transformation in you for a new lifestyle, for a new heartbeat, for a new inclination. For a new desire. 
And so I want you to think about your definition of grace. And I want you to think about the definition of grace by which you believe you have been saved. And I want to ask you the question, has God transformed your inward person? Has God put in you a new heart? Has God filled you with his spirit so that now you want to walk in his ways? Because grace effects change. Something else you see about grace here. Forgive me. Grace expresses faith. Grace effects change, and then grace expresses faith. That is, that the picture here is that grace comes to us, but we are not cul-de-sacs of grace. We are not collectors of grace. That when grace comes to us, it is then expressed from us. It pours through us. It comes out of us, that the Spirit fills us. And when the Spirit fills us with, he works in our hearts and he renews our heart, and he regenerates our hearts and he puts it, makes it new and he gives us a heart of faith. And what does a heart of faith do? A heart of faith expresses itself in faithfulness. A heart of faith, a, a heart that really sees the presence of God, a, a heart that really sees the need for God, a heart that really has a desire and a love for God, a heart that is given to us by the Spirit of good, an actual work of grace begins to be expressed by us in acts of faithfulness. We see this actually in our text. He says something that's very strange. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And not only will he pour out a spirit of grace, he will pour out pleas for mercy. Pleas for mercy. Isn't that interesting? I don't think we think of God in this context very often. That God doesn't just say, I'm going to make you feel good about your sin. He says, God, I'm going to so radically transform your nature. I'm going to so radically transform your desires. I'm going to so radically transform your worldview that you're going to see your sinfulness and you're going to see the, the egregiousness of your sin and you're going to be calling out for me to show you mercy. You're going to plea and express desperation for mercy in your life. That grace rightly understood and grace rightly experienced works in you through an expression that my only hope, my only desire, my only need is grace and mercy from my heavenly father. I think Bonhoeffer helps us to understand this. I've, I've talked about this before, but I think it's very relevant here. Bonhoeffer talks about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. He says that cheap grace is when you preach forgiveness without preaching repentance. In other words, cheap grace is the kind of grace that actually emboldens you in your sin. Cheap grace is the kind of grace that says, you know, it really doesn't matter what I do. It really doesn't matter what I say. It really doesn't matter how I respond to the word of God. It really does not matter the, my faithfulness to the house of God. It, my faithfulness is rather irrelevant because God is just going to forgive me anyway. And so in this way, this cheap grace emboldens the sinner in their sin. This is rather a biblical concept of grace, a discipleship concept of grace, is to recognize that grace is a costly grace. That true grace, known and enjoyed by the, by the child of God, is a grace that leads you to Calvary. It's a, a grace that takes you into the shadows of the cross and makes you look up there at the God-man who was slain on your behalf to say, grace is expensive. Grace came at great cost to the Lord. And recognizing the great cost of grace for you is to say, I don't care about what others think. I don't care about what else I have. I don't care about what else I want. All I really need is grace. And I want to live in a way that brings honor and glory to the grace of the one, that, to, to the name of the one that is 
purchased such grace for me. So if I need to cut off my arm to prevent sinning, I'll cut it off. If I need to gouge out my eye to prevent me from sinning, I'll gouge it out. If I need to radically reorient my priorities, if I need to radically reorient and restructure my calendar, if I need to radically transform the way that I live, I will do it. Why? Why? Because grace has been purchased for me and grace that has come to me will be expressed through me. Brothers and sisters, look at your life. Is this the case? Is this the case? Is your grace a counterfeit or is your grace authentic? Is your grace the actual work of the Spirit of God poured out upon you that you might cry out to Him? See, true revival is a work of God in us. A work of God by grace, but it's hard, hard, costly work. And it's a work of God in us to see an evil by us. One of the reasons, if you ever wonder why I draw on the screen and I do all of these things... One of the reasons that I do that is I'm wanting you to actually see from the scriptures where these things are coming. Uh, That's true. But I'm also wanting you to see how you can discover them for yourselves. I'm wanting you to pick up on certain patterns of Bible study that enable you to be able to to go and not just eat fish, but fish, right? Not just eat fish, but fish, to to enjoy the the treasure. So so it's a, a discipleship mechanism, if you will. And so one of the things, one of the clues that I love when I'm reading the Bible is to find words like, therefore, because are phrases like, so that. And we have that right here in our passage. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And I love words like, so that, because, therefore, because it's telling us what God's hoping to accomplish, what God intends to accomplish. It's telling us why God is telling us what he's telling us, what he's bringing about through these works, right? That there is a means to an end. So he tells us here that he's going to pour out a spirit of grace. He's going to pour out pleas for mercy so that, so that you can see something. The picture that he wants you to see is unthinkable in the Old Testament, unthinkable. That this is God speaking in the first person, y'all. This is Yahweh. This is the giver of the covenant. This is the one before whom all other gods will bow down on their faces. This is the one that calls Nebuchadnezzar to go into a crazy fit. This is the one to whom every nation answers. This is the one that was the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. This is the one that caused the mountains to tremble at Sinai. This is the one that sent the pillar, the, the missile of fire for Elijah. And what does he say, this great God? So that then when they look on me, Me, Yahweh, whom they have pierced. That the God of all gods will be run through for his people. The God of all gods will be run through for his people. He is going to pour out his grace. He's going to pour out pleas of mercy so that their eyes will be opened, so that the veil will be pulled back, that the scales will fall, and they will actually see. They will actually see that Yahweh has been pierced by his people. And we know this side of the cross exactly what that means because the New Testament says it explicitly. There is Jesus having received the lashes, having had the nails driven through his wrists and driven through his ankles, having received the crown of thorns, 
that Pilate tells and instructs the executioners to go and to expedite the death. And the executioner comes to the person of Christ and he takes the spear and he thrusts it in his side. And thrusting it in his side, water and blood pour out of the wound. The Apostle John says this, he quotes Zechariah 12.10. And again, another scripture, that's the one we're talking about now, that's Zechariah. Says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That how is Yahweh going to be pierced? He's going to send his son, who is fully him, fully man, fully God, fully man. And is going to actually be pierced. But he doesn't just want them to see that he's going to be pierced. He wants them to see who's doing the piercing, doesn't he? He wants them to see who's doing the piercing. Whom they, this is his people, whom they have pierced. I want to pour out a spirit of grace. I want to pour out please and mercy so that your eyes will actually be able to behold that I am going to be pierced and I am going to be pierced by you. I'm going to be pierced by you. You are the one that's going to drive the hand. You are the ones who are going to drive the nails through my feet. You are the ones who are going to drive the nails through my hands. You are the one who's going to place the crown of thorn upon my head. You are the one who is going to give me the lashes. You are the ones. You are the ones that are going to, that are going to pierce my side. He's wanting them to see that this is an evil not done by somebody out there. That the sin is not a problem out there. Sin is not an American problem. Sin is a Christian problem. Sin, sin is a people of God problem. Sin is our problem. We are the ones that has, have pierced the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. We have done that. So he's willing to open their eyes to the nature of true repentance. And what we begin to see is that True conviction is an intensive experience. It's intensive. We often pray. And we ought to. We ought to. We often pray that God would pour out his spirit upon us. We ought to pray that. But brothers and sisters, we ought to know exactly what we're praying for when we do. See, when God pours out his spirit upon his people, the normative experience is not some ecstatic out-of-body experience. The normative experience is not unintelligible language. The normative experience is not boisterous laughter. The normative experience when God pours out his people and he responds to their prayers and he pours out his grace upon them and his pleas of mercy upon them is that they would fall on their faces in repentance. That they would be grief stricken over their sins. That their hearts would be broken. John tells us in John chapter 16, I have it there at the bottom of the screen, what the Spirit does. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, and when he comes, this is the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That the Holy Spirit is going to come in as a gift of grace, as a spirit of grace, to open up our eyes that we can rightly recognize the evil that we have done. That as the Song says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It was my sin. Brothers and sisters, you drove the nails. You gave the lashes. 
Brothers and sisters, you place the crown of thorns upon the head of Christ. Brothers, you pierced his side. You scoffed at him. You spat upon him. You did it. And until you really recognize that, that it was an evil done by you that compelled him to the cross, you haven't gotten the gospel yet. You aren't ready for grace yet. You haven't experienced a true work of the Spirit yet. Remember all those years ago, that cold February night I mentioned earlier, my youth pastor, I go to him in the middle, middle of the song, right? And I tell him, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. So he whisks me away, right? He whisks me away to this, this little room that was off the side of the main meeting room. It was one of the, the bunk houses. And he sits down with me, and, and he and I had a very close relationship. And, and he said, Cody, tell me, what, tell me what you're thinking about. Tell, tell me what's going on. And the only phrase that I could really remember getting out was, I'm the one that killed him. I'm the one that killed him. I'm the one that killed him. Brothers and sisters, have you ever come to the recognition that you're the one that killed him? Not somebody else, not somebody else's sin, not sin out there, not sin in the world, not sin in Washington, D.C., not, not sin out there, sin in here. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That true conviction brings you to a place where the Spirit is working so that you are mourning as for an only child, God's only child. You are weeping bitterly. It reminds me of that picture of of. of Peter, after he's denied Jesus three times, and he looks up and he makes eye contact with Christ. They're nailed to the cross. And what does it say? That he says, says that he begins to weep bitterly. And as one who weeps over a firstborn, God's firstborn son, this is the kind of grief that is life-altering. This is the kind of grief that alters your worldview. This is the kind of mourning that changes the way that you see yourself and see the world. Have you done that, brothers and sisters? Have you had this intensive experience of repentance? And that helps us understand what revival is. That if salvation is this true conviction, this, this intensive conviction, this sense of repentance, then true revival is when this intensive repentance becomes extensive across the land. It's when it begins to spread across the people of God. It begins to sweep our churches, not light shows, not fog, not, not all the hysteria of preferences, not better programs, not nicer facilities. Not cooler music, not funnier preachers, but that the spirit of the repentance over our crucifixion of Jesus, over our sinfulness in the eyes of God, over our desperation of mercy from God as it sweeps across the church. Well, that's repentance. I mean, that's revival. You can have full churches and not have revival. You can have filled baptistries and not have revival. You can have sawdust and tents and not have revival. You can have whatever your favorite kind of music is and not have revival. You can have whatever your favorite kind of preaching is and not have revival. Oh, but when the Spirit of God sweeps across the land and the people of God get on their faces before Him, not looking at the sin out there, but looking at the sin in here. That's revival. He says that it goes and he says that David and all his household, 
That's the royal household. They go and they retreat to the house and they, he the, goes to himself and his wife goes to themselves and all of his household does the same thing and they repent in the face of God. And then he says the, the house of Levi goes. This is the priestly household. This is the men of God. They go and they separate from their wives and they get alone in their prayer closets before God and they repent of their sins. And he says then the, the household of Nathan, this is the prophetic household. These are the mouthpieces of God. They separate from their wives and they get in their prayer closets and they are repentant in the face of God. And then you know what he says? I think this is beautiful because this is me and this is y'all. He says, and then all the families that are left, all the families that are left, that's everybody else, everybody else. They're not filling the altars because the altar is full. They're not going just for salvation because other people are going. They're not mouthing words of repentance because David has done it as the king and now it's a social protocol. They're going where there is no heirs, where the inhibitions are lowered where it's just them and God, and across the land, to a person, to a family, they are grieving their sins in the face of God. Brothers and sisters, are we there? Are we there? That's what we're praying for when we pray for the Spirit to be poured out upon us. That's what we're praying for when we pray for the Spirit of God to be poured upon the church of God across this world. That's what we're praying for when we pray for revival, not running fits, but broken hearts. All those other things are fine. God may use those as instruments of revival, but they are not revival. I want to be clear. But one of the truest marks of the gospel is the gospel does break us. It must. It must. We're too proud. We're too hardened. We have hearts of stone, Ezekiel says. Though the gospel does break us, the gospel does not leave us broken. See, that's the glory of the gospel, isn't it? That the gospel brings us to a place of grief and mourning, but the gospel does not ever, 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 ever leave us in despair. That true revival is a work of God in us, that we might see an evil by us, but it is in discovery of a hope for us. It is in discovery of a hope for us. Imagine the scene, y'all. Imagine every house so filled with wailing and mourning in the face of God over their sins that the, that the sound is echoing down the, down the corridors of the roads and the back alleys. Imagine the, the repentance of God's people spreading to the royals and to the priests and to the peasants and to the rich and to the slaves and to the masters, to the young and to the old, to the rich and to the poor. The repentance in the face of God is spreading across the land and it's shaking the people of God. They're grieving over their sin and they're looking at him whom they have pierced and they're recognizing for the first time that they are the ones that have pierced him. And then he shows them another picture. That you might think when he is pierced that he's finished working. You might think when Yahweh has been run through that he is dead and no longer capable of a thing. But chapter 13 verse 1 says that is just the beginning of the work. That he has been pierced by his people. He has poured out a, a, a spirit of grace that they can recognize that they are the ones that have run him through. But God will do an even greater work after he has been pierced. After he has been pierced, there will be a fountain open for his people. There will be a fountain that is open for his people that will wash them of all of their uncleannesses. That will wash them of all of their impurities. That will wash them of all of their sinfulness. And it will be their possession. 
possession in the land forever so that they will be a secure, permanent, invincible church against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail. This is where William Cowper, back in the 1700s, came in his Bible reading. He began to meditate upon this very verse, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. He said, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. When sinners are, are plunged beneath that flood, removes all their guilty stains. See, brothers and sisters, I want you to see that this flood is the most significant thing that Christ has come to accomplish for his people. This is the aim of the prophets. This is the preaching of the Old Testament. This is the accomplishment of the New Testament. And this is the offering of you, for you. That God's grace has come to not just reveal your sin. To not just transform you from sinner into someone new. But to overwhelm your sin forever. The problem of our sin is that it's infinite. We commit a sin against one who is infinitely holy. He is as sinless as sinless can be and he will forever be. Against one who will live and endure forever. Against one who will judge sin forever. The offenses that we bring from God are not just some little white lies. The sins that we bring before God are infinite in their amounts. And we look up to the cross to the one that we have pierced and we can see the enormity and the gravity of our sins, can't we? You can't look at Christ hanging upon the cross, the words of Yahweh being run through by his people because of the sinfulness of his people, and think that your sin is anything but, but big. Well, if you minimize your sin, you're minimizing the gospel. And we look upon, upon the cross and we see the enormity of our sins and we are reminded of what Paul writes in chapter 5 of Romans. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. No matter how big the sin is in you, no matter how great the sin is in you, the grace of God is greater than all of your sin. That's the idea of a fountain, see. The idea of a fountain is that the grace of God has been poured out and it will flood and overwhelm your sin so that it can't get its head back above water, so that it can't live, so that it can't survive. And the glory of the fountain is that the flood waters just keep on rising. And so sure, your sin, your sin may rise, but the floods of God's grace rise only higher. That the cross has breached the levees of God's grace so that you will be inundated for the rest of your lives. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't care how famous your sin is. I don't care how big your sin is. I don't care how broad your sin is. I don't care how many people have been hurt by your sin. I don't feel, care how overwhelming your sin may seem to be. Where your trespass has increased, his grace has increased all the more. The cross has breached the levee. The cross has breached the levee. And beneath the cross, you are poured out as the open fountain of floods which wash away your guilty stains. One more implication of the fountain. We'll close with this. God's grace outlasts your sin. God's grace outlasts your sin. If our problem is not just that it's so big, it's that it lasts so long. I didn't just say yesterday, my problem is not just my sins as a teenager. 
I was saved as a teenager. Those are not just my problems. I've sinned much bigger since then, I promise you. I've heard a lot more people since then. And my problem is not just my sin today. My problem is I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow. I'm going to hurt my wife and my kids tomorrow. I'm going to sin against you tomorrow. I'm going to grow impatient tomorrow. I'm going to lust tomorrow. Tomorrow is my problem. So perhaps our concern is that our propensity of sin to sin will outlast God's willingness to forgive. Brothers and sisters, that's the glory of a fountain. That's the glory of a fountain. God did not give you a reservoir of grace that will one day be used up by all of your sin. God gave you a fountain. God gave you a fountain right there in the middle of his kingdom through his resurrected son that will bubble out grace from now until all eternity. This is why I believe in the perseverance of the saints. This is why I believe in eternal security. This is why I believe once saved, always saved. If I could outsin the grace of God, I promise you, I would. But his grace is a fountain. I am not secure because of how good I can keep his rules now that I've been saved. I'm secure because I'm connected to the fountain. Chapter 14 talks about something called living water in Zechariah. That's not a new arrival in John chapter 4. And here I am connected to the fountain of living water by all eternity. Because Yahweh was pierced and though pierced, not finished. He was raised through Christ, centered as a fountain. And that's why William Cowper lands on these words. Air since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. If you have the fountain, if you have the fountain of grace, if you have the the floods of grace in your life, the theme, the theme is not what can I have. The theme is not what can I buy. The theme is not what can I accomplish. The theme is what has been accomplished for me. Redeeming love has paid my price and his grace has been poured upon me. Let's pray to the Lord together now in Jesus' name. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.